Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. suggests that Nikki Haley has drawn into a head-to-head tie with Ron DeSantis, setting up DeSantis for the need of a ninth-inning home run. Two, Israel stands outside of Gaza, but as this drags on, a new poll suggests that sympathies could drift away from Israel. Three, How many people are running for House Speaker? More than the number of squirrels that I saw on the annual Squirrel Hunt and Catfish Rodeo. It's the Will Kane Podcast on Fox News Podcast. What's up? And welcome to Monday. As always, I hope you will download, rate, and review this podcast wherever you get your audio entertainment at Apple, Spotify, or at Fox News Podcast. You can watch the Will Kane Podcast on YouTube and follow me on X at Will Kane. I just took a shower. I have washed off the smell of campfire. Anyone who's ever been hunting or camping knows that feeling after being away for two to three days. You may have showered, may have showered during the trip, but it was always a little spit of water coming out of a very insufficient shower head with who knows whose shampoo and soap sitting on the ledge. And, of course, a very coarse towel that gets washed all too infrequently. But still, you needed it because it was better than the accumulated dirt and blood and guts that you'd have covered yourself in and every day's hangover of a camping or hunting trip. And I feel a bit renewed. I feel fresh as I return back to civilization from the annual squirrel hunt. And catfish rodeo. Three and a half hour drives with my son back into Dallas leaves me a little bit unprepared for what I wanted to do with you here today on the Will Came podcast. I did. I took the weekend off and I truly took the weekend off. It's the first time in quite some time where I probably took 48 hours and didn't think much about events in the world where I truly tried to live in the present. And it was necessary. It was needed. And it was growth, which I will talk to you about throughout this episode. But it did leave me in a position where I didn't get to deliver on what was my expected promise of part two of our history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in the Middle East. You can go back to last week's episode of the Will Kane podcast, download part one of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It took us from the beginning of the Zionist movement in 1880 through the end of World War I and the Balfour Agreement that sets up the British mandate for Palestine and draws lines in the sand, essentially setting us up for the nation states drawn from tribes in Arabia, setting us up for the nation states of the 20th century that has been, that have been part of our lexicon, part of our history of almost every war since World War II. 
My intention for part two is to take you from that beginning of colonization and violence in the 1920s through the end of World War II and the establishment of the state of Israel. But it is a bit of a beast. I mean, my history is bogged down in commissions and white papers, the Arab revolt of 1936 to 1939, the Jaffa riot, riots and skirmishes and tit for tat and blood and attempts to negotiate some peace and diplomacy lines that work for the Arabs and for the Israelis. It's complicated, and I'm going to try to ingest it and bring it back to you in a Cliff's Notes version where it's understandable, applicable, and a worthy story. Because it only gets more complicated after the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948. But this period, from essentially 1920 to 1948, is really not ground zero because that would be the beginnings of the Zionist movement, but it is the beginning of the flames that light the tinderbox. It's essential to understanding the moment that we are sitting in today with tanks on the outskirts of Gaza and possibly nuclear warheads aimed across the Middle East. I hope to deliver to you that on Wednesday. But for now, because I turned off and because I spent most of my weekend pulling catfish off of hooks, running trot lines, hiking through the forest, and digging four-wheelers out of the mud, I thought I might bring to you three stories that caught my attention through the analogy, lessons, and experiences of the annual squirrel hunt and catfish rodeo. Story number one. A new poll by Emerson suggests that former U.N. Ambassador and South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley has drawn into a dead heat with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis at eight percentage points. It's a little bit like the absurd question of, well, other than that, how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? She might not be paying attention to exactly the quality of the acting when her husband was assassinated at Ford Theater. Should we be paying attention to the also-rans, the far, far distant second, polling at 8% Republican nominees for president, when that same Emerson College poll shows that Donald Trump is currently polling at 50%. 9%. But there is a bit of a story and a bit of defensiveness going around about the rise and fall of Ron DeSantis. Now, I think it's fair and important for your accuracy to point out the real clear politics average of polling for Ron DeSantis right now stands at 12.8%. And that is over and above Nikki Haley's real clear politics polling average of 7.4%. So although this Emerson College poll shows DeSantis and Haley falling into a dead heat, the real clear politics overall average still has DeSantis in the lead, but still a far distant second. That RCP average also has Trump at 59%. When Ron DeSantis entered into the race for president, it was With the idea, at least in part, that you have to strike when the iron is hot. You have to seize. You have to capitalize on your moment. That was supposedly the lesson from Chris Christie back in 2012, the nomination that eventually went to Mitt Romney. If Chris Christie had ran in 2012, he was riding a high. People saw him as the governor of New Jersey that could fight back against leftism. He was tough. 
He could also forge a consensus, but he didn't. He didn't run against Barack Obama. Perhaps he thought he couldn't beat Barack Obama, and so he waited till 2016. And the lesson from that, most people believe, is that Christie missed his window. That you have to do what Ron DeSantis did of striking while the iron is hot. You have to strike when your window is perceived to have opened. And it's true, many saw this as Ron DeSantis's window. He's riding high. Wonderful stewardship as leader of the state of Florida. True, true, brave leadership for Ron DeSantis through COVID. But for whatever happened, simply throwing his hat in the ring to run for president wasn't really striking a hot iron. On Friday night, me and my fellow squirrel hunters were sitting around a campfire in Far East Texas. This uh, little bit of land that we hunt is about as far east in Texas as you can possibly get any much any further. And well, you're not in Louisiana, but you're in Toledo Bend Reservoir, which is the flooded, dammed up lake of the Sabine River that divides Louisiana and Texas. I mean, it is far east Texas. It is it is like in the 1800s, so much so the beginnings of the Wild West, and not what you think of the Wild West, I mean, because we're talking about deep, piney woods and thicket, but truly the beginnings of the Wild West where they had the regulator-moderator wars in East Texas, which were those that wanted to bring law and order and regulate the new frontier versus those that wanted to keep it Wild West, wanted to keep it free. And they literally had a war in this part of East Texas. As we were sitting around the campfire... We all had our phones opened. Oh, we were solving the world's problems and keeping ourselves well hydrated. But we all had our phones open because it was game six of the ALCS, Texas Rangers, Houston Astros. And as it was, half of the hunting camp was either from Houston or a fan of the Houston Astros. The other half of us, either from the DFW Metroplex or are, and always have been, fans of the Texas Rangers. We should say at the outset, this is probably one of the most gut-wrenching losses of my sports fandom in I don't know how long. It's been at least 12 months. Well, when it comes to baseball, it's actually been 12 years. 2011, lost to the St. Louis Cardinals in the World Series. On Friday night, the Rangers were up 4-2. to two. In the eighth inning, they were just four outs away, four outs away from going up 3-2 in the ALCS. As I'm recording this for you right now, game six is about to go. The Astros, by the time you're listening to this, may have already clinched the ALCS and moved on to the World Series. Or perhaps Nathan Navaldi pitched a gym. The Texas Rangers tied up the series 3-3. I don't know. That's why I'm somewhat emotionally put together to have this conversation with you for now, because I'm at least two days removed from what happened on Friday and not yet living through the experience of what happened on Sunday night. But on Friday night, up 4-2, two men on. The Rangers bring in their closer, Jose LeClerc. Two men on, no outs. Up two runs. Surely we can get four outs. Again, history would teach me, well, we've been much closer and managed to lose. We've been one strike away. From winning the whole thing, the World Series, twice in one game, and managed to lose. 
but I wasn't sitting with St. Louis Cardinals fans. So when inevitably, of course, Jose Altuve gets up to bat and jacks a three-run home run for the Astros to go up 5-4, to four, there truthfully wasn't much said. Just the flicker of the campfire. Just some long faces, some quiet. And the kind of silence from Astros fans that reflected exactly how bad it was. You can't rub that in in that moment because there's a slight chance that could erupt into violence or at least bruised feelings and hurt friendships for over a weekend. You ever beat somebody so bad that you just kind of grimaced and didn't say anything? That's what that was. Man, truly gut-wrenching. I felt like somebody had pulled my gut up through my mouth. And... Because I ride the roller coaster, baby. I go all the way down and all the way top. I pay the ticket. I want the highs and the lows. I let them go. I mean, I will ride that thing to the bottom. We're done. It's over. It's inevitable. Fate is what it is. We're Rangers fans. Can't happen. It may be, again, as you're listening, that something miraculous happened on Sunday night. We're tied up going into a Game 7. I don't know. Who knows? You know. I don't know. But in order to ride my roller coaster to where I can celebrate when this thing crest the top of the hill. I have to ride it all the way to the bottom. No flat land on this roller coaster, baby. So down in the dumps. But there's a lesson there. Up 4-2. Up 2-0 in the series. The Rangers had to strike when the iron was hot. They had to capitalize on their window. You can do what I did and say, oh, we just have to win one in Texas. Win one of three. And then you're up three games to one. and You're sitting pretty. But you can't think that way. You have to win the next one. And that's why all my friends that say, I go, oh, we're a year early. We'll win next year. We'll be younger. We'll have DeGrom back. No, you win now. You strike now. The Rangers need to win the next game, not one of the next three. They win the next game. Strike now. Foot, throat, win. Something about Ron DeSantis did not strike a hot iron. I've told you it could impair him for 2028. Something about Ron DeSantis, or maybe just something about Donald Trump, means that Ron DeSantis didn't either have that window or didn't know how to step on his opponent's throat and win when he had the open window. It's more likely. It's a combination of the two. But if I were assigning percentages of probabilities... It's 20-30% Ron DeSantis' shortcomings that will still be there, still be present in 2028. And I like DeSantis. It's not a gratuitous opportunity to talk bad about the guy that's now fallen into 8% with one of the Republicans who would lead us into yet war after war after war and take in refugees of those wars. Nikki Haley promises to get us deeply involved in Ukraine or Israel. And when Palestinians and Gazans are set about Fleeing into the wind, refugees, Nikki Haley also promises to bring them back home to America. And then when Americans can't get jobs, I don't know what her response will be then. When we have refugees that don't assimilate, don't acculturate to America, take American jobs, what will be the next in turn self-fulfilling policy in the traditional, I don't know, compassionate conservatism married to neocon way of the Republican Party for the past two and a half decades? That person 
is who Ron DeSantis is now tied with at 8% according to Emerson College. But the truth is, while it could be 20 to 30% his fault, and that fault will still be there in 2028, it's probably 70% the fact that he's still running up against a man who is simply a cult of personality. And not just a cult of personality, but the beneficiary of policies that have left Americans going, wasn't life better before Biden? We'll be right back with more of the Will Cain Podcast. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. Story number two. As we sit here today, the Israelis look prepared to invade Gaza. Small, Gaza. Small skirmishes on the outskirts. Two American hostages released on Friday. No real word why or if any more will be released. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken suggests there, or he hopes, more of the some 200-odd hostages, 20-odd Americans being held hostage in the tunnels beneath Gaza will be released. And I don't mean to make light of this, but... And it's hard to look at war through the prism of public polling. But anyone who's understood war and understands that the first thing to die in war is the truth understands the value of propaganda. What's the value of propaganda? You win wars with public sentiment. You win wars with public support. First, domestically. You need people to buy in. Uncle Sam wants you. Buy American T-bonds. Support the war effort. You know that to be true. You've seen it. You've read about it. You've learned about it here in America during World War II. You know what happens when American public loses interest and then gets war-weary, tired of the cost financially and with our blood of getting bogged down like every other empire in Afghanistan. You know what happens to public support and public polling on war. It's interesting what's going to happen to Israel. In the past, Israel has largely benefited, I think, at least domestically here in the United States, from overwhelming support. And it's true, too. Today, Americans support Israel. Republicans, something like 80 percent, 78, 80 percent. Democrats, closer to 50 percent. But largely, the American public is with Israel. And that's equally as important to getting support domestically. You have to get support internationally for your war. I mean, international support, support from the UK and support from the United States is really, it was, it was laid out in the Zionist mandates early in the program of colonizing the Middle East. They needed support from a major power. It was laid out by Chaim Weizen, one of the main leaders, the main leader perhaps, of the Zionist movement in the Levant. You need support from a major world power. And Israel's going to need support for this war. But the further you get removed from what happened, the horrific terrorist attack that killed something like 1,300, 1,400 Jews in Israel, the further you get removed from that atrocity, and the attention focuses on tomorrow, on the next move, on the military strategy, and what's happening in Gaza, Israel's going to have itself a difficult time with public propaganda bogged down. Now, I don't mean to make light, but I promise to give you this story through some analogy and some sharing of experiences through the squirrel hunt and catfish rodeo. So sitting on Toledo Bend, this little camp 
runs right off into the water. And let me tell you something. There's that mud, that whatever it is, clay, it is a mixture of clay and sand. It is as close as you get to quicksand that I've ever experienced. So on Saturday afternoon, after we'd done the squirrel hunt that morning, we're all sitting around watching college football, recuperating. And um, uh, my uh, the, our, our leader, Bubba, our leader, my mom's husband, Luke, four, um, comes walking up sweating and muddy and bleeding with my brother and says, hey, we need your help. We're stuck. So me and one of my brother-in-laws hop on. To a four-wheeler, two four-wheelers. Took two four-wheelers off, riding off into the woods. Now, when I say off in the woods, at first we're on trails, but I'm following them, and all of a sudden we peel off the trail into the woods. When I say we pull off the trail into the woods, there's no trail in the woods. We are whipping through small trees, aiming for small trees, trying to avoid big trees. And the four-wheeler just bends down the small trees. These things are powerful, by the way. Impressive piece of machinery. Yeah, we are plowing through the woods, trying to get down to this creek that runs off into the lake where my mom's husband, Bubba, and my brother had run a mule, big old powerful mule, not the livestock mule, you know what I'm talking about, the four-wheeler mule, into a creek bed. And it was into water, up above its tires, into the well, the floorboard, of the mule. Like if you wanted to press the gas or the brakes, you had to put your foot in the water. How did you guys manage to do this? Uh, we just having a good time, thought we could clear it. And they drove down into that thing. And I mean, it must have been like hitting gum, like just <laughs> stuck. I mean, I'm talking about not even a budge stuff. Yeah, not, I'm, no, 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 none of that stuff you do in the snow, you know, rocket back and forth. Come on, you get it. You can't get out and push because you'll sink down to your hip. In this mud. So his big idea is we're going to get the two four-wheelers, and we're going to toe-strap them off and try to pull it out. First, we tried one, mine. So I'm on the four-wheeler. They toe-strap me off to the front, to the the bumper grill, the the guard up front on the mule. He's like, give it a go, Will. Go. I'm like, let me take the slack out. No, nah, pop it. Oh, no, I'm taking the slack out. I ease up. But then I gunned it, you know. Before you know it, I'm riding a Bronco. I mean, my front tires are way up above my head, and um, I i mean, I am a two-wheel wheelie, and I'm going up and back, and the mule's going nowhere. Okay? Everybody thought I gave it a good college try. I didn't back off. I Thank you. Thank you. A few man points. I appreciate that. So now we're going to try on two, two four-wheelers to pull the mule out. So we do that. This is the biggest redneck job you've ever seen making it up as we go on the spot it's the kind of thing you read about how somebody oh that's how that's how he lost his finger at best and bubba was already bleeding from all the trees whipping across his face i mean he had blood all down his shirt so he tied off his four-wheeler to my four-wheeler i was in the lead i was the lead uh sled dog and he was in the second position and then we both gunned it at the same time to try to pull that mule out and i'm gonna tell you something when i gunned that thing it felt like I had gotten hit by Ray Lewis. I mean, just brick wall. Not a butt. Boom. Nothing. Nothing. So I said, okay, okay. Let's go to the other side. And this is the part that's going to receive a little bit of pushback. Should anyone listen? It was my idea to go to the other. Let's pull it out from the back. So we go back to the, find our way around the creek, which took a little bit of doing as well, because we want to get those things stuck. And I ran all the way to the beach, came back up the river. 
did the same thing. Tied it off, went straight to two. And this time, when he gave me the go, I decided this one's it. I'm going full board. If I, if I tumble backwards, I tumble backwards. If we snap a finger or a leg, whatever. Floored that bad boy. I could hear Bubba behind me. He floored his, and I felt a little give. Now I'm moving. I'm moving. My nose comes up, but I leaned up over it. Now we're moving, and then I'll look back, and there's that bad boy coming out. And it was the biggest celebration. It was like, let me tell you something. It was the biggest accomplishment of the weekend. We'll get to that in a minute. That was the biggest success. Hunt for manhood of the weekend. Pulling that mule out of the mud. It was so fun. We rode the four-wheelers back on the beach. There's down trees, cedars everywhere on the beach, so you'd have to run them off into the lake at times, but the lake gradually goes away, so... You know, you're you're driving your four-wheeler up through water, up to your knee-high, coming back on the beach. I went and got my son, my 50-year-old. I said, you got to come do this with me. Got him. We went back, went up and down the beach in the water. He and I then got our four-wheelers, bogged down in the quicksand of the lake twice. There we, since those were light enough, I could get out, sink down into the mud, lift them up over onto a little more solid ground, get out. Man, it was the most redneck, dirty no rules, my son said. I mean, you could do anything there. You could do anything. We shot clays. You know, we didn't light off any tannerite. No small munitions. We had an AR. Didn't fire that thing off. Did that last year. He's like, it's just free. I was like, yeah, man. That's what it's about. That's why everybody likes going out to a campfire, to a ranch, hunting. Because you feel free. Even if every once in a while you get or maybe even because every once in a while, you get bogged down. Now, I'm not making light. I'm just sharing experiences I go through the news cycle with you. You should, I should, we should all worry about Israel's potential to be free from this terror without getting bogged down. I want to show you the results of this poll right here. This is from a Harvard-Harris poll. They polled... Individuals across a whole host of political issues in the United States, including the Israel-Hamas war. When asked the following question, voters say the killing of 1,200 civilians is not justified, but the grievances of Palestinians and the attacks on Jews are genocidal. So let's focus on that first part. 1,200 civilians killed, not justified, but the grievances of Palestinians... Do they or do they not? The grievances of Palestinians justify the killing of 1,200 Jews, civilians. That's the question. Do the grievances of Palestinians justify that terror? 76% of people said no, not justified. 24% said can be justified by the grievances of Palestinians. There's no justification for the horrific terror attacks on those Jews in southern Israel. There's no justification for pogroms across Europe. There's no justification for the killing of any civilians, including those civilians that may be Arab throughout history. And that's why we go through the history together in this three-part series of this conflict. But when you look at this, what's fascinating is the younger you go down the age groupings, the more sympathy for Palestinians I knew that intuitively. I'd heard that, but I'd never seen it put into a poll. Let's just give it a little bit of color and context. People aged 55 to 64 
11% said what happened can be justified by the grievance of Palestinians. 89% said there is no justification. Drop down an age range. 45 to 54, 23% said it can be justified by the grievance of Palestinians. We've more than doubled. But if you go down to the younger age ranges, 25 to 34-year-olds, 48% said that terror, that pogrom, can be justified by the grievances of Palestinians. And once you get to 18 to 24-year-olds, the majority, 51%, said what happened can be justified by the grievances of Palestinians. 49% said not justified. Young people, more so than older Americans, sympathetic to the cause of the Palestinians. If this drags on, And the further attention gets away from those horrific events of October 7th. And as they move on to the war, and as the war is broadcast, my son this weekend at the campfire, as we got to have conversations, special times, special, special times to be able to sit there and just talk with your son. Say, man, you think about the future of warfare, it's all going to be televised. Did you see those Hamas soldiers? They all had GoPros on. I said, I know, I saw that. And who knows where he's seeing it? TikTok? I don't know. Yeah, he said, they all have GoPros, and they're filming it, and they're broadcasting. And I said, how about you combine that with the fact that so many videos can be faked now? What's the future of warfare? Well, you know what the future of warfare is? It's more propaganda. Fake stuff. Fake images. We're already, in, already, we're already inundated with that stuff. But I, I've seen AI stuff recently that blows your mind. How are you to know what is real? Fight for your mind. Propaganda. That is war. And the further this gets away, as you look at this polling, it's going to be harder and harder. It may be easier to win the actual war and harder to win the war for public minds. That's not a, that's, I'm not telling you right or wrong. I'm simply t- giving you the analysis that you should look at this and go, that's going to be hard. Increasingly harder for Israel. We're going to step aside here for a moment. Stay tuned. Story number three. How many people are now running for House Speaker? More than the number of squirrels we killed at the squirrel hunt and catfish rodeo. I'm tempted to tell you it was a down year. But the truth is, incremental growth, we're all getting better. 700% increase in sightings of squirrels there in East Texas. Last year, I think we saw one, killed one. This year, we saw seven. I myself saw four. That's a 400% increase for me. I saw zero before. I saw four squirrels run through the treetops. I took a shot. He was far away, but I was tired of no action. Yeah, man, we saw them. I think between all of our groups, really only did the squirrel hunt one morning. We saw seven squirrels. We killed one. We got one squirrel, just like last year. I was in the group. They got him. Pretty exciting moment. Um, not great eating. And we cooked it up. We did. We skinned it. We quartered it. We fried it. I don't, tell, I don't care how many times they tell you it tastes like chicken. Mm, not big on squirrel. Just not big. We talked about that over the weekend, by the way. What is, like, love hunting? Fish don't count. Fresh fish, wild fish, always almost, I don't know about always, but just about as good as farm-raised. Um, but I mean... I love venison. I do. I like duck. 
Has it ever been as good as a steak? And I know they've chock-fulled that chicken breast full of hormones and pumped them up where he can't even waddle around the coop. And I know that cow, who knows what's running through his bloodstream. But I don't know if you could really... Joe Rogan can talk about elk steaks. Were they ever as good as a ribeye? Anyway, squirrel isn't. I'll tell you that. But we shot clays. We got catfish. Not any monsters this year. We've had 12 to 15 pounders in the past. This one, we were lucky if we got over five. But they still eat well. Flayed them up. Had a big fish fry. Way too much salt and Tony Satcheries. I'm swollen and eyes barely open right now. But we had a great time. Broke down the problems of the world. Spent time with my son. That's what it's about in the end, man. Just talking. Talking about his future and what he wants to do for a living. And yeah, I talk about soccer here and there. That's his sport. Talk about football. Plays on the football team. Talk about friends. Talk about his social environment. Talk about what he thinks of the world. Forget what I think of the world. What does he think of the world? Just be present. Try to teach fewer lessons. Just do more listening. Oh, man. Make mistakes. Got to let him make mistakes. Okay, yes, you can take my car back into town and get Bubba some limes for his drinks. So let him take my truck the 10 miles back into town. Country roads, mostly. Should I or shouldn't I have? I don't know. I never know the answers. You know, take on little bits of responsibility, allow some mistakes to happen, learn your gun culture, your gun etiquette, your gun safety. Did a great job with that. Never caught a stray, stray barrel pointed in the wrong direction. Hit a few targets. Learn to be a man. Make some mistakes. Take on some more responsibility. Let me hear your thoughts. Great. Awesome. Coming a man. So if I saw seven and killed one, how many people are running for house? The answer is nine. Nine people have apparently thrown their hat in the ring to run for house speaker. After Jim Jordan is no longer a candidate, you're looking at now Congressman Tom Emmer, House Majority Whip. Congressman Kevin Hearn from Oklahoma. Congressman Jack Bergman, 40-year vet of the U.S. Marines. Congressman Austin Scott from Georgia. Byron Donalds, friend of the Will Cain program, from Florida, running for House Speaker. Congressman Mike Johnson from Louisiana. Congressman Pete Sessions from Texas. Representative Dan Muser from Pennsylvania. And Representative Gary Palmer out of Alabama. I would tell you more about each of these guys, but I just don't know. I don't know. What do I know about Gary Palmer, Dan Muser? I'm sorry. I'm not going to pretend like I do. I know Byron Donalds. I think he's really smart. I don't know what he is as a leader. I don't know. He's still very young. I don't know about Jack Bergman. I know Tom Emmer's a whip, and that's something you have to do. When Matt Gates embarked on this project, the whole thing, success was predicated upon what comes next. In and of itself, it wasn't good. It was only good in its ability to deliver for the American people a speaker who delivered for the American people and represent the views of the American people. This thing has gotten so out of hand. It's so personality-driven. Everybody's so mad. That's what I think is going Everybody's so mad. They don't want to give Jim Jordan it because then it gives Matt Gates a win. It's like it worked for him. And I get it. Personalities. This is what leadership is, managing personalities. And believe it or not, as I've told you in the past, I don't like compromise in my personal life. I understand compromising government. It's the necessity of a body that has that many people in it. It's just the way it works. So hopefully out of one of the nine, 
We find something. And I'm not rooting for Matt Gates. I'm rooting for America when I say, I hope it's something that's better than it was before for America. There you go. There's three stories through the experiences I had this weekend of the squirrel hunt and catfish rodeo. Will Kane podcast at fox.com, and I will see you again next time. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Dominich, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Dominich Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.